Alright, welcome back to Knife After Death. This is episode 3 of Corpses and Cadavers, part 2. I am Dr. Darren Wolf. I am a board-certified forensic pathologist slash medical examiner. And uh, basically we're going to continue our discussion from last time, which was about cadavers. And of course what I'm trying to do is impart upon you what the substance of death is like. That's what I call it, the substance of death, the many forms that we find the body in that we can, um, you know, that I can impart uh, upon to you uh, what what I see and what I feel um, when I do an autopsy. So I wanted to start this episode with uh, just kind of a look back at the last one, and that is, um, you know, we talked about cadavers. Cadavers are mainly used for um, anatomical dissection, for learning, and uh, learning normal. Whereas uh, when we talk about corpses, we're thinking about autopsies and learning about the abnormal. So all fields of medicine kind of have this, um, this motif where you need to learn normal first before you learn abnormal. And that's how most medical educations are structured. That's why all doctors um, of, of any type of school in medicine usually have that where they learn the normal first and everybody's kind of on the same footing. And then as we get into our clinical um, rounds, we start to learn more about the abnormal. And uh, so that's basically what we're talking about here is that you know, the, the cadaver is, it's, it's pickled. It's been fixed in formaldehyde. It's firm. Even the word sounds hard. The was cadaver, the uh, hard consonants there versus the corpse, which is, you know, by definition, uh, it's a fresh body that's, uh, uh, may or may not be in, in different levels of decomposition. I, when I speak of the corpse, of course, I could mean both, but for the most part, I'm talking about the freshly dead, somebody who's only been dead uh, for a day or two, and then you perform an autopsy. Um, we will talk more about the other substances of death, uh, which would include decomposition. That's going to be the stage past the corpse. Now, a decomposed body is still a corpse, but it has a different feel and a different, definitely a different smell. Uh, and we're going to talk a lot about decomposition on this podcast, uh, but I don't um, have those episodes slated immediately. We're going to we're going to do that a little bit later when we talk about some more basic stuff. And then, of course, very late decomposition where uh, what we have left is mainly bones. So this would be almost like a forensic anthropology type thing. Um, there is some overlap between what I do. And then when we bring the forensic anthropologist in to look at the the bones and make determinations. So we'll definitely do episodes on that as well. Uh, before we get too far into today's episode, I wanted to uh, answer a couple of questions generated by the last episode. Now, this is something I might do in the future where I start the, uh, the new podcast kind of addressing old issues, or I may aggregate the questions and comments and do a mini podcast episode where I simply address uh, these many questions or comments that I get. Unfortunately, I get lots of questions and comments. And by the way, not unfortunately, but the unfortunate part is I can't answer them all because I would spend all day just answering questions if that's um, what I had to do. 
So the first question is kind of funny. Um, somebody said, actually multiple people said, uh, of corpses and cadavers, did you kind of take that as a play on Of Mice and Men, which is a, a novel by an author named John Steinbeck. Many of you probably read it in high school English or something. Um, and that book was written in 1937. The truth is, I actually love that book. That is one of my favorite books. Um, and on some subconscious level, I probably did take Of Corpses and Cadavers from that uh, Of Mice and Men title. But um, certainly, I think mine sounds a little more interesting. Uh, the second que question was, and this is this is great too, because these are from the people who are listening through Apple, through iTunes. Um, had a people um, message me somewhat panicked and saying, Dr. Wolf, um, it starts at episode two. Where's episode one? And I have to tell you, nothing makes me more upset than something that's misnumbered like that. Um, but what happened was when I uploaded the initial uh, podcast, it was in the wrong format uh, for a couple of the the sites that I do podcasts on, which would be Google and Spotify. Um, and so what I had to do is I had to delete the first one and upload a new one uh, of the correct format. And what that did was it it got the numbering off on at Apple, but nowhere else, because Apple uh, will accept the original format that I had put it in. So it took it as I deleted an episode. Um, you know, maybe maybe I would have liked to have been more mysterious and said yes, there's a secret episode out there which only certain people can hear. But unfortunately. Um, I'm not that cool. Maybe I'll do a special one just for Apple listeners uh, to kind of alleviate that angst from seeing the podcast start at episode two uh, or number two. It actually started at episode one. So for Apple listeners, you have not missed anything. Don't panic. Now, one correction I wanted to make from the last podcast was when I was talking about dermatologists um, and other doctors back in the old days performing autopsies because now it's pretty much just pathologists um, and mostly forensic pathologists. But I had mentioned that back in the old days, there were doctors even like dermatologists that performed autopsies. And when I listened to the playback, I heard, um, I don't know if my microphone cut out or if I just misspoke, but um, I had said, uh, and I quote, no respect to derma dermatologists, but it's not what they do. And what I meant to say was no disrespect to dermatologists. Um, so it sounded like I was sort of um, saying no respect to dermatologists. Um, that's not true. I love dermatologists. Um, you know, they do great work. Uh, the valedictorian of my med school class was a dermatologist. So um, I appreciate what they do. Uh, but I think they would also agree that uh, it's a good thing that I'm doing the, the autopsies now and not them. All right. So now let's get into this episode today. Um, I don't think it's going to be as uh, long as uh, the previous episode, but I did want to talk a little bit about history first. Now, I had made uh, some proclamation in the first podcast about how I'm not going to uh, talk a, a lot about history, and that's the truth. I'm not, this is not a history podcast, but I've had feedback where people seem to love the historical elements, and perhaps I took it for granted that people uh, knew a lot of that history. I feel like um, the stories that I know about pathology and autopsy and death are so well told, and they have been told so many times that I didn't feel they needed to be rehashed, but um, apparently people want to hear that. So I will try to add historical elements in when I can. 
And um, so what I wanted to do is I wanted to, since we're talking about corpses today, and really we're going to talk about autopsy, I wanted to talk about um, the history of autopsy really briefly because, I mean, there are books written on this, so I'm not going to go into too great a detail here. But autopsies have been done pretty much the same way in earnest for the last 200 years or so. Um, they have decreased in frequency over that time, not only in America where I am, but of course overseas as well. Um, some of that is due to the the increased volume of regular patient care, which um, kind of overwhelms those who are spe specialists in autopsy. And of course, I mentioned that um, there isn't a reimbursement for that procedure now in the hospital. So autopsy pathology, uh, you know, was, was something that was very big in the 1800s and early 1900s. And uh, an awful lot about what we know about modern disease and old diseases, of course, were gathered by those autopsy procedures. That's how doctors learned about how their patients lived and died. They learned about therapies, new surgical procedures. They would, uh, sometimes the patient would die and they would, you know, have to do an autopsy and find out why. So it's really kind of a quality control measure, um, autopsy, where um, we see if treatments are working, we see if new therapies, uh, new surgical therapies, and then of course, new diseases. And of course, we're in the midst of a new disease right now with the COVID-19 coronavirus pandemic. And there have been autopsy studies published. And I suspect that I will probably do a podcast on those findings because these are, uh, this is a, essentially a brand new infection, a brand new virus that is causing a lot of problems in multiple organ systems. And um, although the pathologists and, and staff are uh, at high risk for doing uh, procedures on, on infectious diseases, new infectious diseases. It's something that's always been done. Um, a lot of what we learned about HIV, in fact, was done um, at the autopsy table. And you have to, to really understand the nature of disease and to understand how that disease kills, you have to do an autopsy and you have to look under the microscope and see uh, on a cellular level how is this disease uh, causing problems? So, you know, 200 years we've been doing that. Uh, most of the medical books um, are written based a lot, at least the pathophysiology part, the pathology part, uh, is based on autopsy. It's um, somewhat thought of as a uh, forgotten procedure because, you know, a lot of people, um, they don't go to medical school to go perform autopsies. And they don't want to be a pathologist um, about... I think the number is one to three percent of people who enter medical school become pathologists, and um, I will talk at length um, at some point in the future why that is. Um, there is some, uh, you know, um, misconceptions about the field uh, for medical students when they come in, and also there is kind of an an anti-pathology bias. Um, that sounds like I'm being a complainer, but I mean, anyone who's in pathology knows when you go through medical school, there's a little bit of a bias. Um, when you say you're going into pathology, you'll have people say, oh, well, you're so good with your hands. Why don't you do surgery? Or you can talk to people. So why don't you become a family practice doctor? And uh, I can talk at length uh, about choosing a career, but ultimately um, we choose the thing that we're we feel most comfortable and we feel best at. We feel that we can contribute to society 
and contribute to the advancement of medicine. Uh, and for some people, that's being a cardiac surgeon. For some people, that's uh, being a autopsy pathologist. So with that said, um, you know, uh, like I said, hasn't changed. The procedure hasn't changed that much in the last 200 years. But there was a, a big gap between the start of the millennium back in about 100 AD or so and 1500 AD. Um, in fact, there was a guy, um, his name was Galen, uh, Galen of Pergamum. Some of you have read about medical history and know about Galen, but what happened was Galen was a guy who did um, uh, very few dissections on human beings. Uh, what he did was he dissected um, what's known as a Barbary ape, which is a kind of primate that's in the um, North Africa um, Mediterranean region. And he, he dissected apes. He also dissected pigs. And he deduced that the anatomy for humans were was basically the same. And he's also uh, one of the ancient physicians that's uh, uh, responsible for the uh, the humors um, method of pathology, and this is this goes back to um, you know the the old bloodletting and and things like that. Like for instance, if you were depressed, you had too much bile, and and it would be that's why it was called melancholy. Um, but uh, because melon means dark and then call means bile, uh, so. It was really not a scientific thing. It was kind of, this was our best, this was his best guess on how the body worked from a physiologic perspective. And then his anatomy was based on animal anatomy. And so what was interesting is, um, you know, Galen did this in 100, 200 AD, somewhere around in there. And then it just stuck and nobody questioned it, or maybe they questioned it. They probably got their heads lopped off or something if they questioned it. But basically medicine, uh, the knowledge of medicine and anatomy and physiology remained virtually unchanged from the year 100 or 200 to about the year 1500. And then there was a renewed interest in the human body. Um, you can imagine, and there, there are many reasons for this, and some of it has to do with the Roman Empire. Um, there have been some people um, kind of say that the Catholic Church was responsible for suppressing dissection. There's different stories on that. Some say yes, and then there's actually some evidence that uh, dissection was was thought of as a good thing and was you know scientific progress was was not suppressed. Um, again, entire books have been written on that. But the important part to note is that without anybody questioning Galen for fifteen hundred years. Our understanding of medicine is 1,500 years behind at that point. And so I think on a bigger scope, that's why it's important as a scientist, as a human being, to question things. Um, you know, it's it's one thing to come up with a conspiracy theory that has no basis. But if you have good uh, logical thinking about why is this process the way it is, why is this not the way it should be, that's science. And um, eventually Galen's... Um, findings, you know, fell by the wayside, and they're found to be completely wrong, actually. Um, there was a guy in the 1500s, and his name was Andreas Vesalius, okay? He was in Italy, and he is known today, and probably forevermore, as the father of anatomy. And that would be nice to have that kind of a title, wouldn't it? I don't think he ever really knew how maybe important that was, but he knew that he was doing good work because he was able to start dissecting real human corpses. 
And this guy, not only um, did he did he do this, but he produced this incredible book, which detailed all of the the anatomical structures of the human body. And of course, he saw lots of pathology as well. He was doing dissections on executed criminals because at the time, that's what was legal is uh, for someone to be executed. This is different from what we talked about in the last episode with Burke and Hare, who were actually killing people in order to sell them for dissection. Uh, what Vesalius was doing was legal. And anyway, he produced... Um, a book called On the Fabric of the Human Body, and that is uh, the English translation of the book. Um, it's actually got an Italian name. But it's, uh, the point of that being he, he produced what is considered to be the greatest work in probably the history of anatomy, and um, it is um, incredibly illustrated as well. As, as many of you know, I'm, I'm very interested in art. I like to produce my own art. But uh, Vesalius's book is incredible. If you Google it, you can see some of the images um, from the book. It's incredible. I would love to see a copy of that book someday. Um, but you know, the, that's kind of, I think the, where it kicked off for the modern, you know, medicine to get started was Vesalius. And then as we had all this understanding of anatomy and all this understanding, uh, more understanding of physiology, um, we went from kind of the dark ages to that sort of Renaissance period where we were now understanding the body and we were starting to, uh, I guess the word would be demystify. It wasn't so much about evil spirits or too much bile or too little bile or things like that. Uh, we were They found that there were concrete reasons for diseases and that perhaps these diseases could be treated. So, um, you know, from the mid-1500s all the way into the 1800s when the really great work in medicine started with a German pathologist named Rudolf Verkau. Um, if you've read that name before, you may have pronounced it Verchau. It's not Verchau, it's Verkau. And his name comes up a lot in medicine. Um, he's um, not only an incredible physician pathologist, but he was also an incredible guy. I mean, very interested in in politics and advancement of, of uh, public issues and things like that uh, and healthcare issues. So, and he was way ahead of his time. But anyway, Rudolf Verkau he is the guy who started looking at tissues under the microscope. And he is the one who started to formulate the cellular basis of disease. Okay, and this is, a, this is something I'm going to come back to uh, over and over again as, as you listen to my podcast. And that is much of what occurs from a disease perspective begins inside of the cell. And that's why looking under the looking in the microscope at the tissues is so important because we can see cellular changes there which will portend or will um, indicate the disease process. And so Verkau in the 1800s was the guy who uh, kind of set us on that, that track to where we are now. And so much of what we can do uh, is, is now based on that. And so, well, you know, looking under the microscope at, at tissues is something that's been done for a while. It is kind of a, uh, a classic thing to do. Now the advancement of of um, microscopy is it's kind of gone in the molecular route. Um, uh, not, I shouldn't say that it's gone in the molecular route. It's, it's heavily um, reliant on looking in the light microscope with your eyes and drawing conclusions. But there's also a lot of tests, um, immunohistochemical, immunohistochemical type tests and also molecular type tests, which are really bringing this field 
um, you know, into the 21st century and beyond. Um, we, we'll talk about the future of pathology, both um, on that level and, of course, the autopsy level in uh, future episodes. But, you know, uh, ultimately, all of this comes down to scientific curiosity. Um, you know, that that is really the basis of all of this, is not knowing something and then finding a way to get those answers. And so I, you know, talked about, you know, the first autop, you know, the autopsies that Vesalius did, and then some of these rudimentary dissections that Galen did. But, you know, I like to think about like the first autopsy, the very first autopsy that was ever done. And that was probably done in prehistory. Um, if you look through the records and you, and you sort of study the literature, there are descriptions of postmortem exams and procedures of removing flesh and things like that in China and India from thousands of years ago, you know, even long before Galen was doing his thing right at the turn of the millennium there. Um, but this is what I'm speaking of. And when I say first autopsy is before any of this, before any written history, and I'm talking primitive man, because, you know, if you think about it, if you think about primitive man, uh, you know, it doesn't really matter. I'm not going to speciate uh, from an anthropological perspective and say it was Homo erectus or, you know, Australopithecus or something like that. But the the idea is that we have inherent in our minds, in our brain somewhere, um, the notion to become curious and to try to solve problems, at least um you know, it seems that it seems that we we do have that. I know today in this modern world, there is a, a high degree of what I would say is incuriousness uh, that people don't want to know why things happen, or maybe they just simply deny it happens altogether. But we would not be able to make progress in any fields were it not for this tendency to be curious. And so, I've I've often mused about uh, primitive man imagining uh, what the first death was like that he witnessed, that he or she witnessed. Um, you know, you can imagine that uh, tens of thousands of years ago, a lot of deaths would have been due to trauma. They would have been due to falling off cliffs or maybe getting hit with a spear or uh, getting eaten by a bear or a tiger while trying to, um, you know, get food or shelter. And that those uh those cases, you know, would be quite obvious. I mean, I think even to a, a primitive human being, if a, if a tiger tears you apart, the cause of death is going to be, you know, sharp force trauma. Well, I don't think they would say that, but, uh, you know, that that's quite obvious. What I'm talking about, though, is imagine a situation where you can, I always picture kind of this primitive, you know, prehistoric campfire and people are sitting around it. Perhaps they're eating. Uh, and then one of them clutches his chest, falls over. And then the rest wonder what happened. And I always imagine that in that group was the first scientist, you know, the first medical scientist, because somebody saw that happen and they had to think more than just it happened. They had to think, why did that happen? This, this person was eating, maybe it was due to what he was eating. Maybe we shouldn't eat that anymore. But eventually someone, someone decided to open the body. 
And, uh, of course, you know, uh, primitive man for a couple of million years has been using stone tools. Some of those tools quite sharp. Uh, some of those tools used to remove meat from animals that they were killing. I would imagine that many times there were uh, primitive autopsies where uh, even obviously no medical training involved, you can tell that something went drastically wrong. For instance, if you, um, for someone who's had a ruptured aorta or ruptured heart, ruptured myocardium, the cause of death is obvious the moment you open the chest. And so I always feel kind of connected to that, that primitive level of curiosity when I, when I do an autopsy. And in, that's why in this particular episode, I kind of wanted to recount for you my first autopsy. Now, I'm not going to go over every single solitary detail, although I do remember pretty much all of it. Um, it, it had that kind of a, an aura to it that it, uh, it just stuck with me. You know, um, I mean, the, the lighting in the room, the degree of lighting, the, the, everything that was on the walls. I mean, it's just crystallized for me. And I think that those most important impressionable moments in your life is, is, something you'll always remember. And so what I wanted to do is I wanted to read uh, something that I wrote uh, for a magazine article, uh, and um, it was about a decade ago, actually, and it was about this very topic. The The magazine article was called To See for Oneself, and it was about the history of autopsy. And so while I, I don't like to do scripted stuff mainly uh, for, for these shows, I will occasionally do scripted stuff because I, I have done, I, I am somewhat of a, I guess you would say an amateur writer. And um, every now and then things are, are phrased just so, and I feel like that those scripted things could maybe uh, tell the story a little bit better. So I want to read a very short passage from this article, uh, just the intro, and uh, kind of talk about this first autopsy. On a gray November morning during my pathology internship, I stood alone in the morgue of Indiana University Hospital amid the gentle buzzing of fluorescent lights and the steady drip of a faucet into a stainless steel sink. A recently deceased woman lay on the metal table, her skin pale yellow and smooth. She still wore earrings, a wedding ring, and makeup. Plastic tubes and IV lines protruded from her body, the last throes of medical intervention. With a sense of awe and excitement, I readied myself to perform the ancient ritual of autopsy. Although I had seen dying patients as a medical student, I had not been the lone person in a room with a dead body since dissecting a cadaver in my first year of medical school. There is the stillness of inactivity, and there is the manic stillness one experiences at these moments. Adrenaline amplified the physiologic responses of my body. I became aware of my breathing, the rushes of warm air crinkling my paper surgical mask, and the thumping of my heart as the pace increased. Although the body before me was now as unfeeling and inert as any other inanimate object in the room. I sensed the life this woman had lived. As a young wife, daughter, perhaps sister or mother, now mourned after a long battle with disease. I struggled to let go of my innate aversion to death, 
accept its finality and separate the person from the body that remained. Focusing on my task, I performed the standard external examination, the pathologist's counterpart to the traditional physical exam a family doctor, internist, or surgeon might perform. While preparing my opening cut, I found a prominent grapefruit-sized lump where the shoulder meets the upper chest. I steadied my hand and pressed the blade against the skin, puncturing the epidermis and the deep soft tissue until the scalpel hit bone. The skin retained enough elasticity to recoil from my blade, and I quickly completed the series of cuts to create a Y-shaped incision on the chest and abdomen. I examined the tissues of the chest wall, which revealed a fleshy mass of disorganized white tissue that extended from within the breast into the underlying skeletal muscle and ribs with an implacable grip. This was the nature of cancer, perfectly illustrating the etymology of the word from carcinos, meaning crab. The name was coined by the great Greek physician Hippocrates, based on the tendency of infiltrative malignant tumors to spread in a stellate finger-like projections that resembled a crab's legs and claws. The word autopsy, from the Greek meaning to see for oneself, expressed my experience here, developing my understanding of malignant tumors with my own eyes, a skill I would cultivate for the remainder of my career as a pathologist. It was a humbling episode to see such a personal, flagrant, and advanced display of this illness in a woman of my own age. I felt honored to be the only one to lay eyes and hands on the very substance of the disease that had brought this woman to her death. I also felt a sense of connection with the physicians of eras long past who took the leap from merely observing the surface of a body to seeing what was within. Such discovery is the purest form of medicine when a clinician when a clinical condition can be directly linked to observed physical manifestations. So that was the opening incision of my first autopsy. Um, I was, you know, uh, it was just a little bit overwhelming. I mean, I, I was a little nervous. It wasn't too bad. Um, I had been primed that it was coming because, um, during my first year of residency, I was on call for autopsies, um, during November and several days had passed without one. So I knew that it was coming. Um, although hospital autopsies have decreased over the years, when you work at a university medical center, you're going to get several a month usually. And so um, I remember one morning um, as I was still in my apartment, not quite to work yet, my pager went off and I knew what that meant. I knew I was finally going to get to do that first autopsy. And uh, so I went to went to work and we have like a morning meeting that we did and then down to the morgue. And so, uh, you know, I went into the morgue and... Um, I was expecting, um, you know, there to be a procedure where we get the body out and it takes, you know, 25 minutes to do, but instead the body was already out. It was laying there. Um, body bag was open. The, the body was unclothed. She was just laying there on the table and the, the deaner, um, had already pulled her out and had her ready for me. 
Now, Diener, let me let me take a moment to explain that. Diener is a term which is um, another name for an autopsy technician or uh, a morgue technician. Um, and it's not, uh, I, I think the term is falling out of favor a little bit. Um, it's from a German word, Leichendiener. I hope I pronounced that right, although without the proper German accent, um, I didn't want to show off. So um, that actually meant corpse servant or morgue servant. So it was like a servant of the dead. It was an old term. And again, much of the um, uh, work in pathology were done by German pathologists, um, Rudolf Verkau and um, a guy named Rokotansky. They did like over 100,000 autopsies, I think, in their career combined. And so a lot of these words have German origins. So the diener is, is a word that uh, kind of made its way into regular use. And um, as, a, as an aside and more uh, related to some of the cultural things that are happening now, um, I was, uh, it was a term I always used, diener. And um, when I did my uh, forensics fellowship, I was trained by an African-American lady, uh, forensic pathologist. And um, one of my first meetings with her, um, I had talked about, you know, um, well, where, where are your deaners? Can I meet your deaners? And she pointed out to me that that is not a term that she likes very well uh, because the the word deaner means servant. And so there was like an implied servitude. Um, and so I think they're trying to go away from that term. Um, although um, all of the uh, deaners I had worked with were African-American and they were fine with that term. But I understand that um, there's some culturally um, sensitive terms maybe which are, are falling out of favor. So um, I guess just if you're working in a morgue, uh, find out if people uh, find that term acceptable or not. I think um, I use the term now autopsy assistant, uh, sometimes forensic autopsy assistant. Um, but uh, just wanted to, to take an aside there to talk about the diener. Sorry. Um, but anyway, so the diener had pulled out, and of course not Diener, but autopsy assistant, had pulled out the body, and um, I just stood there alone in the morgue with her. He wasn't there yet, um, or he had been there and left, and I just had time to kind of stand and look at her. And it was rather amazing because, I mean, she really looked like she was just asleep. And that's because this body, as I had looked at the chart, this body had died um, only a few hours before. And, um, you know, I, I even started my external examination, which, uh, is part of the autopsy exam, which is, uh, dedicated to just, um, noting whether or not there's medical intervention, noting hair color, eye color, um, presence of injuries or obvious signs of disease. She had a very obvious sign of disease, this obvious huge tumor on her chest. And, um, uh, as I, did the exam, I could tell she was warm. I could touch, you know, cause I touched her, her body to, to look at her fingernails and to look inside of her eyes and things like that. And she was still quite warm and it takes a while for a body to cool down after death. Um, you know, we'll talk about changes after death, but usually it's about a degree uh, Fahrenheit per hour. She had been four hours, but there's also some bodies, particularly if they have fever before death, um, the temperature will um, not go down as quickly, 
or sometimes due to the action of bacterial metabolism, the temperature will actually increase. So yes, it's true. A corpse, uh, a body can be dead and still kind of have a little bit of a fever for a little bit, and then the temperature starts to drop off. So I'm not sure she had been in, in the cooler at all. I think maybe they brought her straight from the ward down. Well, that did increase the anxiety a little bit because unlike the cadaver, which was hard and firm and gray and cold and had been in formaldehyde for six months, um, this person was breathing four hours ago, uh, presumably. So that first incision was probably one of the most anxiety-provoking um, moments of my career. And, um, you know, I just, I took the scalpel and I just, uh, once he came in and we were all set to go, I may, wanted to make sure that I did the opening incision. Um, in many cases, autopsy assistants at, uh, universities will perform the whole procedure. Uh, sometimes in forensics as well, they'll do the whole procedure. So, uh, I wanted to make sure that I got that opening incision under my belt. And um, unlike the opening incision, if you remember my description of the cadaver, the knife just sunk into it um, without any response. You couldn't even see the skin split on the cadaver. But in this case, her skin still had a lot of elasticity. And so as soon as you put the blade in, it split. It just split open and recoiled, jumped back from the blade. And thankfully, she didn't move. I was, uh, I think that was my biggest concern was what she was going to do. But uh, the autopsy itself, you know, I he did part of it, I did part of it. And for most of the time, I think I was just observing. It was just such a surreal experience to have this warm body uh, that, you know, you have your hands on and then suddenly you have your hands in. You're literally taking the heart out, taking the lungs or the, the bowels and kidneys. And there's really two parts that stood out to me um, of course, we'll talk in great detail. I mean, by the time you finish this podcast series, whenever it ends, um, you will have a very good idea of how an autopsy happens and what it looks like. When you take the Y-shaped incision of the chest, um, what happens is, is you actually reflect the top part of the Y, which is the top part of the chest where, you know, if you imagine your chest where a necklace would be, that actually is reflected back over the face. Uh, so you dissect that tissue back because then it gives you access to the neck, so the larynx. Um, it gives you access to the clavicles and the top of the rib cage because you have to take the, the ribs and the sternum off. And so it was so unusual to see this human body, which just moments before looked like a sleeping woman, to now have this, this flap of, of flesh um, bright red skeletal muscle, bright yellow fat, just covering her face. It was um, just part of the procedure. There's nothing disrespectful about it, but that is the nature of it. And so that that visual stuck to me, but uh, most unusual was the opening of the head. Um, that's the one where uh, you, you kind of never forget the first time you see a human head opened. Um, yeah, so basically what happens is is to open a head you take the scalpel behind the ear, and if you feel behind your ear, you can feel a bone, a bony prominence. It's called the mastoid, and you do what's called a bimastoidal incision. So you put the knife all the way down to the mastoid, and you go up over the top of the head to the other mastoid behind the other ear. And then you dissect the tissue away from the skull. Usually you can do that with your hands. You don't need to do it with a knife. 
um, unless it's really tough. And you dissect that tissue away and then you simply fold the, the flap over the face. And so now that's a very unusual thing because all of a sudden, you know, you see this, this particular woman had like a lot of blonde hair and, and it had been styled, you know, and then uh, once we decided to open the head, the part he actually did, I, I was just observing because I had never done that before. Um, then all of a sudden you don't see any hair and, and it's, it's flipped over the face, the entire scalp. And then the skull is exposed, bright, uh, kind of whitish tan bone. And you can see uh, the, the sutures of where the bony plates of the skull are fused together. You can see the temporalis muscles on the side of the head. And it is uh, definitely an unusual thing to witness. Um, but then, then comes the sights and sounds part. That's the sights part. The sounds, probably most unusual. The bone saw, of course, opens the skull. There are many different ways to do this, so I'm not going to talk shop on techniques. But the point is, the top of the skull is called the calvarium, and you have to saw through that with a with a what's called a striker saw, or there are different types of saws. And then you have to insert a skull key. It's called uh, some people call it a skull key, um, and it's really a T a T shaped piece of metal that you put in your hand. Um, it almost um, like you would do with a, a wine cork. But anyway, you put the skull key in the groove that you've cut with the saw and you turn it. You literally turn it like a key and the pop sound that it makes when the calvarium is liberated is very unusual. Um, you'll never forget that. And then, of course, what happens is, is that the skull, uh, top of the skull doesn't usually just pop off. It's actually attached to part of the dura. The dura mater is the lining of the brain. And the outside of it serves as the periosteum or the lining of the inside of the skull. So then you have to pull the calvarium back and it produces this like ripping, sucking type sound. And so, uh, yeah, at that point, uh, there was some... Um, I think shock on my part because I really didn't know how a head was opened, but that, uh, made an impression on me. And of course now I do it, uh, all week, every week, and I don't even think about it twice, but the first time you do it, it's, uh, it's pretty stunning. Uh, I've been meaning to put up a series of dissection type videos on my Instagram and or YouTube. Uh, but how the pandemic has caused a problem because, I don't want to set up camera equipment or get up my phone out and, and start filming and things like that when we may have potential, you know, COVID uh, air uh, dust coming off of bone saws and things like that. So hopefully if things get um, a little more in line for this uh, pandemic and, it, you know, hopefully goes away at some point or we somehow find a way to, to get past it, then um, you know, I'll start to produce more of those videos. That was going to be one of my aims for 2020 was producing more dissection videos, but you'll get to see a nice, um, professional looking, uh, removal of the skull and many other, um, parts of the body of the autopsy. Um, that will be kind of, um, a, uh, you know, a second part of what you're listening to now you're hearing the verbal part and then you'll be able to watch the, the visual part. So, you know, um, there's a lot I could say about the 
the first autopsy of my own, but I think that that covers it pretty well. Um, I know this will probably generate a lot of questions, but ultimately it all goes back to that scientific curiosity that I talked about. Uh, you're kind of in awe and horrified at the same time when you do your first autopsy. And, you know, to me, the autopsy is the clearest expression of scientific curiosity in medicine. Um, if you think about, you know, Newton had his apple, but the medical examiner has the corpse. And um, at its root, this this process and this podcast and everything we talk about is all about scientific endeavor. I mean, as we've gone over many times, the word autopsy means to see for oneself. And so it is, in a sense, about obtaining a form of truth. Uh, sometimes it's uh, to see for oneself, but also uh, another translation of that word is to see oneself. Because when you do an autopsy, you're also seeing what you look like on the inside. And you also muse about, well, what, what diseases might I have that I don't know about? And so, you know, th that's, I think, why I like forensic pathology so much uh, in this form of medicine is that it's so scientific at its, at its uh, core. Um, it's, it's all about obtaining truth through making observations and then drawing logical conclusions based on that. Because, you know, that the truth doesn't always come in the form of facts, but I find it comforting when it does. You know, I could talk uh, a lot about the, the nature of truth. Um, I think in some ways truth is being made to be subjective um, in the scientific realms, that we should, we should, in fact, always question science. But if science can produce the backup, can produce uh, or, or can have reproducible results and the data is good, then your ability to assail it goes away. And so um, I think that truth can, can be related to uh, emotional things. For instance, you might know that you love somebody, but you can't prove that objectively, but you know it in your heart. Well, I'm in the business of finding things objectively and observing with my own eyes and producing results based on those facts. And so I feel like if you, if your truth is not based in some realm on facts, then ultimately your truth will be based on opinion or emotions. And there is a place for that, but not in the scientific realm. So uh, I hope to talk more about the nature of science the the nature uh, as it relates to forensic pathology because ultimately that's why I'm in this and I think that ultimately that's why you listen whether or not you want to go into forensics you have the curiosity and it's the morbid curiosity about death and it's the morbid curiosity about how things work that maybe you don't uh, have an intimate knowledge with but I hope to provide for you a conduit to obtain that knowledge and to show you how I think and how scientists and medical scientists think and how we arrive at the conclusions that we arrive at. And so with that, um, I think that that is pretty much uh, sums up the episode of, of Corpses and Cadavers Part 2. Um, if you have any questions, of course, um, I'll try to answer them. 
Um, most of you know my Instagram, which is at anatomy and the dead. There's an underscore in between each word. Um, and, um, I have a YouTube channel under the same name and there are various ways to find me. But, uh, for the most part, um, you know, I hope you enjoyed this and then we will be back with another episode. Although I, I'm not, uh, releasing the title of that just yet. We'll see what, what happens and what, uh, you know, the ether dictates for me to put in as the next episode. 